Hello and welcome to the Elephant in the Room podcast. This episode is very special for us here at uh, the Georgetown Republicans as we honor some of our incredible seniors. I was speaking to two of them in this episode who are incredibly accomplished. First up, we have Julio. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, guys. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation and sort of reflecting on your time as a Hoya, now as you graduate, and some of the things that you've done and are still doing, uh, whether that be in the U.S. government or in the conservative movement. But first of all, let's talk a little bit about your time here at Georgetown. What was your the favorite class that you've taken throughout your four years? Yeah, I guess the the favorite class I'm currently taking it this semester. It's called uh, Putin's Generation. Uh, it's taught by Jill Doherty. Um, she's an accomplished journalist. She was CNN's uh, <laughs> CNN's um, fake news. <laughs> she was the the chief uh, correspondent in Moscow, so she has a lot of experience. Um, when the war in Ukraine happened, she actually left uh, the U.S. She uh, left our class <laughs> and went on the field um, in Russia to report on what was going on. Um, but we kept the class going on virtually, so we, we really got a, a good glimpse of what's happening, um, particularly because uh, you know she brought a lot of young folks from Russia, um, and they were able to speak more and you know, how they felt about what was going on there. So it's pretty interesting. That's an incredible opportunity. So yeah. she had it. She had it with you uh, where she was in Russia and she was you got to speak with people who were actually in Russia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she would uh, zoom in uh, like at midnight her time um, to, to stay with like our, our, our class our scheduled class time. Um, and she would bring uh, people that she found on the street, just random uh, wow. Russians who wanted to speak about the situation. So pretty interesting. Yeah, that's that's absolutely incredible, and you don't get that anywhere else. Just right. to plug Georgetown. Um, <laughs> but what advice do you have to to those future Hoyas who are either in between Georgetown or who have already committed to Georgetown? What what do you think that is the best thing for them moving forward? Well, I'm a bit biased because I'm actually, as you may know, I'm going to be staying here to pursue the master's program as well in in the School of Foreign Service. Um, I think uh, coming to Georgetown was the best decision I could ever make. Um, I think that um, location is very important. Um, and if I have any advice for the future Hoyas, would be to really take advantage of everything that DC has to offer uh, because, um, you know, professionally, the Hill, uh, the executive agencies, government offices, but also we have a lot of, you know, businesses, a lot of the headquarters of um, finance organizations. Um, um, because, you know, it is the capital city of the United States. Um, and I think a lot of these opportunities are highly facilitated by the Georgetown network. Um, I think, you know, when people see Georgetown on a resume, I think they're more likely to to look at it. Obviously, this is me speaking with my bias in favor of Georgetown. But I think it's true. Um, you know, they say that we have a, a mafia uh, in, in the U.S. government, which is true. I mean, you look at the White House, you look at State Department, you look at all these agencies, and you'll see the most folks come from Georgetown. But also, we do have a lot of people from Wall Street um, in, in various different organizations, think tanks, nonprofits, um, the D.C. area. So I would say um, it's really important to balance out your academics. Um, academics are very important, of course, but um, it does. you have more of a story to tell if you complement your education with really cool opportunities that are only accessible to students in D.C. 
Yeah, absolutely. And whatever you're interested in, there is something yeah, for you. Exactly. It's not just government or foreign policy. I right. mean, you could even internet the Department of Agriculture if that's exactly. what you're into. So exactly. even though yeah, it's a government agency, but yeah. you pursue interests, your own interests, uh, I definitely agree. Yeah. Whatever you want um, right. is there at, at your fingertips. All it takes is, is will and the push to apply and to get into those circles and make those connections. Right. Now, what is your favorite memory of GUCR? My favorite me- memory of GUCR, uh, let me think real quick on that. I have many, so I have to pick just one. Some of, During the COVID semester, some of those who were here in D.C., um, this was outside of the club. This was not <laughs> endorsed or, you know, sanctioned by GUCR officially. It was just GUCR members on, their own, on our own accord uh, deciding to meet up. Um, and so we met up at, um, I forget, it's this park over by um, the running track over mm-hmm. on, you know, up there by, by Berleith. There we go. Berleith. Okay. Um, this is a nice little park with a lot of benches. Um, and it was pretty nice to connect af- after like many months uh, um, on Zoom. Um, we just like got some YCs um, and then we just went there. It was a great time. People brought like, uh, soccer balls and just like all these like uh, things, uh, sports, um, sports equipment. Um, but it was a great time, you know. Um, it was it was really. Uh, I think that's my favorite memory because I mean, COVID was tough for everyone, and just seeing everyone again was was really cool, and just hanging out and being there. So yeah, definitely. I remember going to the first, I would say, GCR social event that I went to. Yeah which was the Labor Day picnic mm-hmm. where they got YZs and we just sat on this bench. It was not too far from where Darnell is. And nice. uh, we just sat there. We got to know each other being our first year on campus, not just for me and other freshmen who are in the class of 2025, but also for a lot of sophomores who had their entire freshman year online and they were finally meeting people. And now let's talk into some of the more targeted questions. You know, <laughs> you're a resume and you're... Uh, over your time here at Georgetown. And one of, I would say, your greatest accomplishments is what you're doing right now at the State Department. Is that's incredible, especially being in the School of Foreign Service. I think a lot of people in the school SFS really want to work in the State Department. Mm-hmm. But especially now with the Biden administration and how reckless they have been on many, many fronts, how have you been able to put aside your personal pol- politics and your personal philosophy mm-hmm. to work in a State Department that is headed by Antony Blinken and the Joe Biden administration? Um, so, so, yeah, just for clarification, um, I, I've just been accepted into a fellowship at the State Department. Um, I have to first, uh, co- you know, finish my master's degree and then um, going to into the, the State Department uh, in 2024. Um, I, I got to say, you know, um, Something really important that I've learned, I think, you know, it, it really comes from my faith, right? And also a lot of the Jesuit values that I've learned in Georgetown. And I think one of them is, um, uh, it's, uh, I'm forgetting it now, but it basically deals with, uh, right, assuming best intentions. Um, and I think, you know, something important that I've learned, just, you know, having the opportunity to to work in various government organizations, government agencies, and um, the, the U.S. Congress um, for the past four years here in D.C. is, uh, I think, you know, unfortunately, the media sort of kind of, you know, says things in, in such a way that, 
kind of divides divides us and you know makes it seem like the other side is like the enemy but i think once you're in government and you actually get to talk you know with your fellow government officials fellow uh, staffers you really get to see that um it, it's you know you actually agree on a, on more than you think um and i think the most important thing is that most people, whether Democrat or Republican, agree on the issues that are facing our country right now. You know, you've seen growing bipartisan consensus on the threat of China. You've seen, uh, you know, the growing bipartisan consensus on responding more fiercely to the situation in Russia and to support Ukraine. Um, I think the difference comes in how we approach solutions. That's something I'm really looking forward to, to sort of, you know, uh, build. Um, in my time at the State Department when I when I officially joined. Uh, simply because, you know, I think you're right. I'm going to have to be working for different administrations. I may not necessarily agree 100% with each administration, um, but I think having that sense of open-mindedness and uh, being willing to, to work and compromise, because at the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about anyone other than the American people and the country, you know, you're called to serve. And so I think it's really for for those of us that get the privilege um, to be called into public service. I think it's really up to us um, to to be able to make compromises and make the the best decisions possible we can um, for the people that have put us in in these roles. Yeah, and I think a lot of my mentors, uh, you know, I have mentors that are Democrats and they're great people, um, as as much as I have mentors that are Republican. Um, and I think the biggest thing is just being able to stick to your values um, and to your beliefs. You know, my, my personal values are uh, informed by my faith as a Catholic um, and as a conservative uh, growing up in Latin America. Um, but certainly I can see that there's, uh, there's a lot that we can work on together. And I think that's something that Washington really needs to work on, get rid of the divisiveness and the polarization um, and, you know, really get back to, to working together again. Yeah, I agree. We certainly lost that ability to really work together because I think, especially in certain situations that I've been in, there's not the same, I would say, equal respect that or mutual respect that um, you would need to have productive bipartisan dialogue. I think if we start having that again, like I have a really good friend who's a Democrat and we're really, really close and, and it's always great talking to her and we always respect each other. We're like, look, we're going to disagree. But that's that's a good thing. You know, difference is good because that's where we get to better places. And I and I agree with you wholeheartedly that we should all have the same intentions to make America a better place, to strengthen America, to help the American people. And I I do my best. I, I always have to check myself and make sure that mm -hmm. I'm seeing that in, in the opposition and Democratic Party and in uh, other people who are Democrats to really push forward that um, consensus and, and will to have the same outcome. It's just a matter of we have different roads of reaching the same goal. Right. But shifting over to, I guess, a more partisan question <laughs> is how do you think or why do you think, especially people who are Latino, shifted so greatly, especially in the Rio Grande Valley in Miami, to Donald Trump and the Republican Party in the 2020 election, something mm -hmm. that nobody ever anticipated. And a lot of the mainstream press said Trump was the most toxic candidate for Hispanics in Republican history, but he actually was the best with, with Hispanic voters. Um, how do you explain that, or how would you anticipate that among 
with your own personal experiences. Right. So I don't really, you know, intend to speak for all Hispanics, right? But just just for my observations, and you know, I've spoken to many people, sort of about their thoughts on this. I think the biggest thing, uh, especially for my friends who live in the Miami area, they're, they're Cuban Americans. Um, I think, uh, in terms of foreign policy, for them having a a government and administration that is tough on the Castro regime is like crucial. Um, same with a lot. If you look at the demographics in Miami, you have a lot of South Americans, uh, Colombians, Venezuelans, and um, and Cubans. Um, and I think what people often forget is that, um, you know, I think that for the most part, just be based on our culture, I think, you know, Hispanics were more drawn to, you know, a conservative sort of identity. Um, although that doesn't necessarily always translate the same here in politics in the United States, but I think uh, at least for Venezuelans too, it was also like the approach of that administration, uh, the tough stance on like the Maduro regime um, and not being willing to work with them in any way, in the sense like, you know, you're kind of isolating them and kind of putting pressure on them, international pressure, um, whether that's through economic sanctions um, or just, you know, um, diplomacy, right? Because I think um, name-calling and, and giving labels to, you know, countries is still a very important thing. So the way you label a country, that defines how they will be looked at in their national system. So, if, you know, if you label the Maduro regime for what they are, which is, you know, a, a, a regime that abuses, uh, you know, human rights um, and, you know, just has a disdain for democracy, um, you know, that, that sort of gives an image, gives a hint for how other institutions are to engage with them. But I guess the other aspect is um, the economy. I, I'm going to be honest, I'm not necessarily a fan of economics. <laughs> I, I, I barely got through my classes here at Georgetown in economics, but I got, them, I got through them, fortunately. Um, I think just from what, I, you know, from speaking to people and, you know, reading some articles and looking at some things, I think that also the biggest thing was just like the, the growth of jobs um, for minorities, Hispanics, uh, the black community, um, et cetera. Um, and I think that this was in part due because I think like one of the approaches, um, I guess, from the GOP recently has been, and we see it a lot too with uh, uh, Governor DeSantis, um, is, you know, to move away from just creating, you know, uh, like office jobs, like professional office jobs, which, you know, uh, are important. Uh, you know, I confess I've all my jobs, fortunately, have been in an office setting. Um, but I think that, the, you know, there's been sort of this growing, like, movement towards technical jobs that don't require college degrees and sort of diversifying that job for portfolio. And I think that that greatly benefited a, a lot of people in the Hispanic community, especially because when you come from Latin America, y you could have been a doctor, a lawyer, um, but it's really hard to transfer those um, credentials into the U.S. system. Um, and so you have a lot of people that are, you know, very overqualified and, you know, but unfortunately because, you know, the credentials don't transfer over, they're more likely to be in a job, uh, you know, a more technical job, uh, less, less professional in a, in a sense. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of Hispanics, uh, were able to, to take, um, to take on those jobs. Like I think, you know, in South Florida, we see a lot of, you know, cons uh, infrastructure projects, happening both at the federal and you know national uh, local level 
Um, and so, you know, construction workers, um, I think a lot of Hispanics were able to take those jobs, and they were good paying because, you know, some of them were uh, contracted by the federal government. Um, so, I, you know, if I were to, to, to put this in a, you know, a concise little summary, it would have to be um, the economy. Jobs, I think, are very important because at the end of the day, I think most people, what they truly care about is having the freedom to do whatever they, they like, obviously, within a legal framework and, you know, doesn't pose a threat to anyone. Um, and just being able to take care of your family financially. That's all that matters. I think people just want more money in their pockets and they want to be able to have the freedom to choose how they spend that money. And I think that's what sort of like the GOP offered in that administration. And that's sort of like the focus there. So that's that's just my opinion on how I think, you know, why uh, Hispanics shifted towards Trump in 2020. Yeah, it's definitely uh, valid. And there are uh, a lot of political analysts will be trying to figure out the answer to that question. Right, right. <laughs> I'm sure we'll see whether that trend will continue coming in this midterm election year. I mean, Democrats have a trifecta right now, <laughs> and a lot of Americans are not pleased with what they see. I mean, I worked for the Glenn Youngkin campaign for governor mm -hmm. in Virginia, and that was, I spoke with a lot of parents who are fed up with the um, education system. They don't think that it's as meritocratic as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And so they actually, they want their kids to be taught a an objective education. They mm -hmm. want kids to learn the facts. They want to be told, uh, they don't want to be told what to think. Right. That's looking at federal and then state level politics, I think will be something very interesting as well to note because yeah. while Trump did really well with Hispanics, you saw in the congressional races, Democrats still held a very good share of the vote. I mean, Florida's 27th district, mm -hmm. which um, is now uh, with Congresswoman uh, Maria Elvira Salazar yeah, as their representative. Great. I mean, that was a district, I believe, that Biden won and then mm -hmm. she won at the at the at the house level but at the same time in those three text southern texas districts they voted for their incumbents henry Cuellar, vicente gonzalez and philemon vela they all won by a much larger margin than joe biden did in those three districts so i think right. that's also one thing to, to look up to and how let's say greg abbott will do mm. compared to um the house candidates that will be running yeah no no you're right and if i may add one thing that i forgot i think uh also another important issue uh for uh, Hispanics to his uh, safety. Mm -hmm. I think we've all seen the rising crime levels in our country, which is, is very alarming. Um, you know, it, it's very unfortunate. I mean, just here in D.C., just like a couple of days ago, we had a shooting on Connecticut Avenue. Um, you know, I, I walk there quite often. I know a lot of Hoyas do, too. Um, we also had one in the Georgetown neighborhood, remember? A uh, helicopter uh, flying around. Yeah, on M Street, yeah. Uh, outside Georgetown Cupcakes. Um it, you know, um, and I think uh, you're seeing this sort of approval, uh, right, of uh, especially Hispanic communities towards, uh, you know, uh, folks like the, the Glenn Youngkin administration who've taken a tough stance on crime, common sense, um, obviously, um, you know, um, it's, it's not perfect all the time. Policing is not perfect all the time. And I think like, um, you know, Officers who abuse their authority and who um, are obviously, you know, neglect their training and, and the rules they must abide by, they should be, uh, you know, penalized. And I think we're seeing some of that. But for the most part, I think like, you know, um, just the, 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 you know, 
the recent like defunding of, of police departments all across the country has been you know extremely uh concerning right because at the end of the day it does end up affecting minority communities a lot um and you know not to go too far but you know if you think in the case of central america a lot of people come here because they lack security in their country so it's you know it, you know and coming here you see america as the beacon of hope that the land of the free american where, dream american dream really uh and so i think it's been a bit disappointing to see some of you know the democrats um stance on on policing and, and sort of you know defunding it and then you see just see obviously what we all expect to happen right the rising crime levels so i think that's also another factor to consider for the upcoming elections absolutely well thank you so much julia for your time and for joining us here at the elephant in the room and we wish you all the best in your future endeavors thanks so much appreciate it and next up we have the incredible and talented brady marzen joining the podcast thank you so much for being on brady it's an absolute pleasure Oh, that's just too kind. Ian, thank you for having me. And welcome to this senior special episode of The Elephant in the Room. Just wanted to give uh, a big tribute to you guys in the graduating class. You welcomed me and a lot of other freshmen, so we wanted to express our gratitude first and foremost. And let's dive right in. Um, the first question I have for you, and this mirrors the first interview, is what what has been the favorite class you've taken at your time here at Georgetown? Absolutely. And just before I get into that answer, I really do want to just reiterate uh, congratulations on starting the podcast. It, it is long overdue and you're doing just a fantastic job with it. So Thank good you. luck uh, as it moves on. I'll be listening uh, as an alum. But favorite class at Georgetown, uh, I'm going to be greedy and steal two. Uh, so the first was with a guy named John Lerner. Uh, and he taught, and this is the course title, Understanding Donald Trump's Foreign Policy, which at Georgetown sounds like it'd be an incredibly politically charged course. Uh, and never mind the fact that uh, Professor Lerner was Nikki Haley's deputy UN ambassador. Wow. So he worked on these issues very directly. And what he said is this is going to be a fully nonpartisan analytic class. And so all we are doing is looking at what the Trump administration did and why they did it. And we're not going to comment on whether we like it or not. And it was the first time at Georgetown I've really been able to have interesting discussions about politics without bringing my own background biases politics in, and that was just refreshing and interesting. And the second, and really this is a professor more than a class, but, but uh, Father Stephen Fields has just been incredible. Uh, he's taught me a new way to think uh, and to look at the world, and he's strengthened my, my Catholic faith. But the course I enjoyed most with him, I've taken three, and so if that's not proof to, to his quality, uh, was a course called Christian Mysticism, and, and it was discussing and studying in an intellectual, analytic manner how people experience God. And so really two interesting courses that capture a good swath of what Georgetown offers. Wow, so both of them sound incredible. <laughs> yeah, one of them, homage to the uh, to the Jesuit tradition, and then the other one, of course, to the political side, being in the We do them both capital. well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and that's uh, definitely a testament to how you're maximizing your time here at Georgetown and um, just I can not only I can I cannot imagine taking a class about Donald Trump's foreign policy and it being apolitical. I cannot, I, especially with our generation. It was a credit to the students and to the professor, uh, and we had some amazing guests come in through that. It, it was just great. Was it a smaller <laughs> class or was it twenty uh, one? Okay, yeah, so that's smaller. a good that's a good number. Yeah, uh, typically for those concentrated ones, they tend to be smaller.
Um, but yeah, moving on. What is your what advice do you have for future Hoyas who are coming, whether that be in the class of twenty twenty six and beyond? I think the best thing is that, uh, and this is something I've learned is that nobody goes away, and, and I say that meaning that in your life there's gonna be people, especially in politics, who have views you really dislike, and, and we see a lot. It's tempting to be rude to those people, to be mean to those people. Uh, but having done this for four years and, and going to do this professionally, everyone at Georgetown is really smart, really talented, and almost universally acting in good faith. And that means there's a very good chance you're going to be working with them, not just for the next four years at Georgetown, but for the next 50 years. Uh, and enemies you make now don't go away. Uh, and the same is true of friends you make now. And so if you can treat people with respect, with decency, and, and with some charity, uh, I think you go a lot farther. And you enjoy it a whole heck of a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. I can put it any better. Um, <laughs> and also get off the hilltop. The hilltop's amazing. Uh, you know, get invested in clubs, get invested in classes. Yeah. But you're in D.C. Do internships. Go meet people. Go around the town, uh, and get to know your professors. The professors are all fantastic. Uh, yeah, they're always incredible to pick yeah. their brains about <laughs> whatever subjects. Um, but one other question that I would like to know your thoughts on. Uh -huh. Was what is what has been your favorite memory being in GUCR or Georgetown more broadly? But since this is a GUCR podcast, I figured we make it a little bit more specific. There have been so many in Georgetown. Uh, the Georgetown University College Republicans have been such a huge part of my Georgetown experience. Right, I've been on their board three times uh, and I've been involved throughout. And so, really, my two. Or I'm going to pick three because. Uh, and so, the first one was as a freshman. I ran for freshman representative. And there were 10 of us and very close race. I made it to the runoff uh, with two other just stellar, talented individuals. Um, and I think I won because I did win the race. I think I won when the moderator asked, who's your favorite president? And the first guy said Ronald Reagan. The second guy said Ronald Reagan. And I said Calvin Coolidge. And the whole audience erupted in applause because they're like, who's Calvin Coolidge? But we like him. <laughs> and so that was really nice. Uh, one this, of the most uh, forgotten presidents, but one of the best. And Reagan is a I very think. close second. And so I really yeah, wasn't very far. Yeah. But but it was just a fun night. Uh, really good people. And we all ended as friends, which is what you want mm -hmm. in, in a club election. Uh, and then second one was when I was president. And we had our first general body meeting back from COVID. Because online, in the first semester where I'd been president, uh, we'd seen our membership go up. We'd seen more engagement. And there was this real question of, will this carry over to back in person? And so we have our first boarding. We, of course, bought chicken nuggets, which is a club tradition for, for the general body meetings. And we get to the classroom, and there are nearly 100 students, which is over double anything I'd seen in, in my three wow. years before. And so we had this just incredible energy, students who were interested, looking to get involved. Uh, and then the very third and final one was at the end of my term, my very last event as president, uh, and this is really a credit to Elizabeth Holland, the current president who, who led this charge and put it together, was the first CR formal, right, College Republicans that was awesome, formal. Yeah. And the board really just did a great job getting the room together, getting people to turn out. And we had never had a formal before. And so that was exciting and interesting uh, and, and just wonderful. Yeah, definitely. I remember going to my first general body meeting after coming to Georgetown and um, – it was it was a very crowded room, and uh, I was very happy to see that, and I was very surprised. Yeah, but it was a great um, 
welcome and it was it just the energy it just built off the energy and it really made me want to go further with you sir which is why now i'm on the board (laughs) exactly and well deserved thank you but it's just it's it's been great to be able to serve this community as well but now a few more specific questions those are more generic but what pushed you and i know you you kind of alluded to it before but what pushed you to run for president yeah and, and this goes a bit into what i tried to do as president and it touched on what you just said the way I see a, a college Republicans club, not just at Georgetown, but in general, uh, it really has to have two parts. And, and that's the political side, which obviously you need. It's a political organization. But you also want a community aspect because, especially at undergraduate universities, there is a left of center lean. And I think that's a good thing because we become better thinkers as a result from, from engaging with views uh, with whom we disagree or with which we disagree. But what I tried to do as president, what I saw was lacking, I think, in our club in some ways, was that robust social side where people were making friends through the club, right? A lot of Georgetown clubs have that environment. And I think we were in this place where we were only meeting at events and then everyone would go their separate ways. And that's great, but you don't form the type of bond you need to actually get things done, to actually build up a club like what we want. And so my first and foremost aspect in everything was, hey, let's build up this community side. Let's become a really welcoming, warm place. Let's bring a diversity of thought. Let's have these discussions that where you can be open and share your views and learn from other people. And by doing that, I think we actually really helped our political side because we became more respected on campus. We became more open to students who weren't fully with us, but who were interested. I think that's where a lot of our new members came is they said, hey, you guys are doing some good events. You guys seem like you're having a lot of fun doing those events, uh, you know, speaker events and, and you know, campaigning events and all that. Uh, and I would like to be a part of it. And so from one, once they're in the room, once they're meeting people, you can then follow with the, hey, what do you think about insert your issue? Uh, but on, in contrast, I think if you start with, this is our first issue and we're ready to fight over it, you might be correct on the issue. And you should try to, you should be correct on the issues if you're going to be serious in politics, but you aren't going to attract people who might not be as involved as you, who might not be as plugged in or, or where you are. So that was, that was why I ran. And I think we were able to do it in a year, which was fantastic. And it's, it's yeah. not a finished project. Uh, and so it's on this board and boards that come after to, to finish that work. But we gave a really solid foundation. Yeah. That's also actually one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast is to reach those who maybe don't want to be seen yeah. with the GUCR logo, with you know anything Republican, uh, <laughs> out of fear of being labeled. And so this is, I think, an opportunity for those who are you know more quiet conservatives to mm-hmm. still be engaged with what we're doing. And I know certainly we have uh, plans to keep this podcast directly correlated with G- uh, Georgetown Republican events. So stay tuned for that next semester. But um, on the social. Uh, aspect of uh, Georgetown Republicans, I think it's definitely important to have that community and space. I mean, I'm on the Georgetown Model UN team, and that's one thing that they prioritize is team bonding. And you got that a lot at smaller conferences. I just did one at William & Mary called Anmun, and it was a much smaller team than I did a conference before virtually uh, called McMunn, which is in <laughs> at McGill University. Insert all the McDonald's memes that you want. We also made those jokes. <laughs> um, 
but it was virtual, so it was hard to really have that team bonding. I mean, I knew a lot of people who were on the team, yeah. and of course we had like virtual bonding, but it was not the same. And then my first ever conference was at the University of Pennsylvania over in Philly, hmm. um, and that was a bigger team. Of course, we did bond, and I got to know a lot of them really well. And of course, all of them, if a lot, if not all of them, Julene left, hmm. and so a lot of them were quiet on i tried to i just didn't talk about politics i mean we bond over other issues or yeah. other topics go about that like we they're all incredible people and they're all incredible at mun at molly yeah, UN. exactly Which, so that's as it, it should, should be. be yeah you don't yeah. want every friendship you have every relationship you have to be political exactly right? values are important their character mm -hmm. is important but the politics side is not the be all end all of exactly human relations exactly because if <laughs> if you do that you'll just be in an echo chamber You'll never develop, I think, as much of a person. I mean, it's important to stay true to what you believe in your values, but that doesn't entail just locking yourself in a room and just reading the same news every day and talking <laughs> to the same people all the time. But moving on to the next uh, question, how do you promote the presidential ticket? Because I know you were here for the 2020 election on campus when you're not taken as seriously as, let's say, the, the Biden team was in 2020, and you know that you're not going to yield as much interest well, as yeah. as the as like the college democrats would well i actually was not on the board for that year it was the one year i my, my junior year i was not on the board uh for for a number of years. i was working and I was, I was off campus first semester but the board at the time did a really good job in, in promoting uh, president trump and they actually had a fight with the admin that came out of it because they put out a formal email endorsement for president trump Right, which you can like the guy, you can not like the guy, you can still be a Republican, and that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly wasn't his president, and a fan of his, uh, and now I'm, he is where he is, and that's that's great. But at the time, the admin came back with an email and said, "You cannot endorse candidates. It's, you're not allowed. You're Georgetown's apolitical, and so you can't endorse candidates." And that's probably the correct view: is that that club should not be student clubs should not be endorsing candidates, but we then sent about seven emails back with images to the admin of the college Democrats and other student groups endorsing candidates and essentially said, hey, why are you only targeting us? All the, if you're going to endorse the rule, endorse the rule. I think you're probably right. Georgetown's a nonprofit, great, uh, nonprofit university in, in that sense. Um, but you can't only target the CRs. You can't only come after the college Republicans. And, and so we actually won that fight. And they said, no, no, you're right. We're sorry about that. What well, was the essence, as I remember it. That's great. Uh, but then, like I said before, I think that with promoting any candidate, the way you do it is by doing something that is interesting to undergraduate, something social, mm -hmm. right? So you get pizza. You, you have a get-together beforehand. You have a separate event, a general body meeting. And what we did for other candidates when I, because we had the Yunkin race. Yeah. And that's what we were working on. Yeah, I, I, I was, I remember. I yeah, and you were great. You were stellar on that. that. Yeah. As much as I could. Because exactly. living abroad, I got no campaign opportunities. So yeah, I'm very grateful to that uh, for yeah. uh, setting that all up and getting us in, in touch with them. Because it was such a great experience. It's right across yeah. the Potomac, across the Key Bridge. You're in Virginia. Exactly. You know, you D.C., for now, uh, at least until the midterms, is surrounded by Republican governors. You got Larry Hogan in Maryland and now Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And I always saw a bunch of pictures after the after Youngkin was declared the winner, like saying, we have you surrounded D.C. <laughs> and it had a red Maryland, red Virginia and a blue D.C. Oh, my. And that was just yeah. it's it just great to feel now that you can just cross the key bridge and you have a Republican governor should yeah. you need it. Well, that's where I think our earlier investments in 
having people become friends through and in the club and have them become like have Republicans being friends with Republicans really paid off. I put, you know, quote unquote, uh, in the sense that folks who, who normally would not give a second look at door knocking or doing phone calls said, oh, a bunch of my friends are going on this Saturday afternoon. And so I am going to go with them because I like the people who are campaigning with me. Yeah. And I think that was very effective. Uh, yeah, at, at getting turnout, getting folks to turn out and, and do that. Yeah, I remember one afternoon, one Saturday, well, Saturday morning, it was an afternoon. One morning, we got a bunch of, uh, a big group, a respectable group mm -hmm. uh, together, and we went to, I think it was Annandale High School. Oh, yeah. And we went around that neighborhood, and we were door knocking, not only for Yunkin and the and the main ticket, so that was uh, Winston Sears, Jason Miares, but also the House of Delegates candidates. Whenever I knocked on somebody's door, and they were like, oh, like hi, and I and I had my Youngkin T-shirt on, and uh, gave them the pitch. I said, "Are you voting for Glenn Youngkin or Terry McAuliffe?" And when they, especially when they were undecided, I said, "Well, here's a brochure. It outlines why um, you should vote for Glenn Youngkin. He's going to prioritize mm -hmm. your kids' education. If they were parents, uh, he's going to return uh, Virginia oh. to being a strong economy. He's going to really give jobs, and everything will be better. Essentially, yeah. no, the Youngkin just administration, and he's been." He's exceeded all my expectations, so I'm very, very proud to have worked for him and gone to his inauguration. Nonetheless, that was a <laughs> real incredible experience to uh, see what it was like to head down to Richmond uh, and see what it was like to celebrate a victory since I hadn't felt one in a very, very long time, and to be in the U.S. to watch that an election night in the geopolitics living room. God bless geopolitics; they're a great group. But I that is very so, true. That is very true. They are a stellar, stellar, stellar institution. Th it was so satisfying to be in that room <laughs> when they declared Yunkin the winner. Uh, but now moving into my last question for you is how, because you've been now more involved in the DC Federation of College Republicans, so yeah. beyond just Georgetown's <laughs> campus, yeah. but all the other DC schools, which are really, really important and play a big role. I think as well in promoting the republic, the conservative message and, and agenda on campus. Um, but how does working for them at the DC Fed differ from a more localized approach at Georgetown? Yeah, so I, I'm the current elected chair of the DC Federation of College Republicans, and that's part of the uh, National College Republicans organization. I just love it. And it's great because at Georgetown, you get to work with and you get to go deeper into the student leaders and the the unique Georgetown issues to, to the political side. But for the D.C. Federation, or as we call it, the, the D.C. Fed, you get to see brilliant folks at all of our member schools, right? So Catholic, GW, American, right, which are just all really top-tier universities. And the Fed is also interesting because at the university level, right, so for the Georgetown College Republicans, you're doing very explicitly events, membership. You're doing the execution side. The federation the side, grassroots. exactly, which is vital, vital. Um, but at the federation side, what you're doing is really touching on how can we help these individual chapters become better chapters? What can we do to support you? How can we serve in an advisory role? Uh, it's really, it, it's a brain trust in a lot of ways where you get folks at all four schools so you can compare ideas, best practices. You get to talk to your, what's working at your school? What's not working at your school? Right. What speakers are you bringing? How, how do we help you do that? How can we boost turnout at your events? And so that's really neat. And it's also the chairman before me really helped build it back up. It had gone dormant in a lot of ways for a few years. And so he left me in a good spot. We were able to have our first ever in-person events as a federation with people from those four universities coming together, getting in the same room, meeting each other. 
that's really unique. It doesn't happen anywhere else. And it gave a space for conservatives at the four schools that are that are in our group to expand their knowledge of what it's like to be Republican in D.C. Yeah, I know it's absolutely vital. And I went to, I think, the two events that were last yeah. semester, the happy hour event yeah. and then the brunch. And it's I would say it was very rewarding because you like, as you said before, like you're going to be working with a lot of people at Georgetown who are Democrats yeah. and like in the government, you're going to do the same thing with these people who are going to be your colleagues on the Republican side. Exactly. So that's especially one of the reasons why I really wanted to go is to meet people from other schools and get their takes because, you know, we have. We share them among ourselves being at Georgetown. But what is it like at American at GW? I mean, American has the reputation of being the most progressive campus in America. <laughs> yeah. So I think any Republican who survives American University deserves an extra gold medal. Well, they're fantastic. And, and you can tell yeah. that they are just brilliant because they engage with those arguments. Exactly. And, yeah. and it helps them in a good way. And they way. brought in Winston Sears, which I thought was oh, absolutely yeah. fantastic. I was bummed that I could not make that event. <laughs> but Winston Sears really generated this enthusiasm that I didn't see hmm. in a lot of other candidates. Uh, on the ticket, like she is an absolute rock star so, nationwide. She's a rock star, and yeah. and so is Governor Youngkin. Yeah, right. That's both. the and, and ditto Jason Yar is down yeah. the ticket. Uh, but yeah, the thing, the nice thing about the Fed and, and the DC Federation uh, is that you really do get to just meet incredible people, and you get to see chapters across DC succeed, and, and that's been just really wonderful. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Brady, for joining the the elephant in the room. It was an absolute pleasure having you on, and we hope. Uh, all, all the best in the future. We are, we're always here supporting you and uh, all your work that I know that you'll do. That will be just fantastic. And we're, we'd always be happy to have you back again now that you'll be an alum of Georgetown. Ian, this has been absolutely wonderful. Keep up the great work on the podcast. And, and really, it was a great, great, great time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening to the senior special episode. Be sure to check out parts one and two of the premiere if you haven't already. And last but not least, I want to make sure that it is made clear that all views expressed in this episode are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of GUCR as an organization. And that's all for me. I wish you all a fantastic summer, whether you're staying in Washington, D.C. or whether you're going home. I wish you all the best and thank you so much.